Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360, and my usual co-host, Natalie Rodriguez, is out today, so we're joined by The Term's executive producer, Amber McKinney. Welcome to the show, Amber. So great to have you on. I'm so happy to be here, Jimmy. I haven't been on the show in a long time, and I'm really only here to say, Jimmy Hoover, have you broken the Supreme Court? Where are all the opinions? (laughs) The opinions are... Nowhere to be found this week. Um, there was literal silence uh, on in, in terms of cases that have actually been argued. But you're right, it has been a while. I think, Amber, you were on a, on a show when I was out. I don't think you've guest hosted with me before, so this is a, a very welcome uh, first in our in our third oh, season. Oh, that's nice. Here that I didn't realize it. that. <laughs> I didn't realize that because you're so frequently a, a guest on the Pro Se podcast that I I co-host, and so we've talked many times. I feel like this is as natural as can be. Exactly. So so you're exactly right in that it's a it's an extremely slow week at the court. Um, there were zero opinions. It kind of took a lot of people by surprise because they have like a mountain of work to get through before the end of the term, ostensibly at the end of this month. Yeah, I think it's uh, the tally is 33 um, cases left to drop. Whew. That's a lot. That's a lot of work to be done. If my editor told me that I had 33 stories to write this month, I, I regret know, I to inform you, Jimmy, break you out do and... have 33 because <laughs> yeah, we're about... waiting on all I, of them. I suppose that's true. So, yeah, I can, can, let's dive into the numbers here. I, I know that June is usually a month where it's very busy and, you know, we almost have this conversation every term where we're like, can they get this work done in time? But typically they max out at around like 22, 23, maybe 25 opinions in the month of June. But 33 with, you know, I guess I, I understand that the Supreme Court has just announced that on Monday there will be opinions because they had a conference today as we record on Thursday. It seems like quite an awful lot. And there are pretty substantive kind of messy cases to issue. I mean, these aren't the low-hanging fruit ones, right? Yeah, I was going to say that to you, Jimmy, that we're not waiting on any like small issues, really. We're waiting on gun control, sort of the formality of the abortion ruling since we had that leak and we all know that's coming. We're waiting on a couple of death penalty cases. There's a religious um, schools one in Maine that is very closely watched. The list kind of goes on and on of hey, is there a hot button issue in America? Well, the Supreme Court's got a case on it and they haven't released it yet. Yeah, and, and that's that's a really interesting point. So on the one hand, you know, it's a pretty tough term. There are a lot of really tricky, thorny cases that are inevitably going to produce a lot of, um, you know, sharply worded dissents. I'm sure even quite a few concurrences, a lot of splintered votes that we're going to be seeing um, over the course of the next month. But I, I wonder because, you know, the court often is used to dealing with a lot of these high profile cases. I wonder if maybe there's a little bit something else that's gumming up the works. Well, I mean, we have sort of talked a little bit about is the the leak of the abortion ruling uh, has that slowed things down because the court obviously had to deal with the fallout of that. And we are going to have a guest on a little later in the show um, to talk about the latest with the leak investigation. So that may be part of it, but it's just so hard to tell at this stage. As you said earlier, we have many years where we're like, can the court get this all done? This one just seems particularly fraught, but I still have faith that they will conclude in June or at the latest, (laughs) the beginning of July. Right. Yeah. 
well, you know, we know the justices like their summer recess, so they'll, they'll try and get it done. But um, that's not to say that there was absolutely nothing that came out of the court. Um, perhaps it wasn't a case that was actually argued, but there was some there was a pretty big shadow docket update that we got um, in the case of the Texas social media law. Amber, why don't you break that one down for us? Yeah. So the, the order we got this week was in a case called Net Choice versus Paxton. I want to give a little log line on this one. It's the high court temporarily blocked a Texas social media law that stops platforms like Twitter from banning users based on their viewpoints. This bar in the law is just temporary. It's in place until a Fifth Circuit challenge of this legislation gets decided. And basically, the Supreme Court reinstated a lower court's order blocking the enforcement of this Texas law. It's called HB 20. It was signed into law in September 2021. So you can see how fast track this has gone through the courts. The law came about as a response to conservatives who said they were being censored by social media companies. So let's get into the bit of the background here. They, the Texas passes this law. They're tr- they think, um, you know, they say conservative viewpoints are being censored on these big platforms like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. Where, where do we go from here? How do we end up at the Supreme Court? Yeah, I just want to give a few points on that so people really understand what we're talking about. The challenge to the law was brought by a couple of tech industry groups, NetChoice and the Computer and Communications Industry Association. Those groups say HB 20 unlawfully forces social media platforms to carry objectionable speech. And they say things could get really ugly really fast. The trade group said the law would compel platforms to allow all sorts of stuff. This part's a quote. It's things like, quote, Russia's propaganda claiming that its invasion of the Ukraine is justified, ISIS propaganda claiming that extremism was warranted, neo-Nazi or KKK screeds denying or supporting the Holocaust, and encouraging children to engage in risky or unhealthy behavior like eating disorders. So you can see we're talking dark stuff here that they are worried they will have to host on their platforms. Meanwhile, Texas actually says the law protects free speech. It only requires companies to refrain from discriminating against the user's speech. They say that that's how it should work. Texas's Attorney General Ken Paxton basically compared social media companies to a telephone company, meaning it's a common carrier that shouldn't be Mm -hmm. able to bar certain consumers. Uh, I think I see. So there's these competing arguments on both sides. Now, of course, I assume that the Supreme Court, you know, took the time to go out of its way and explain exactly why it decided to reinstate this injunction and once again block the enforcement of Texas's HB 20, right? Oh, the magic of the shadow docket. They didn't say <laughs> much at all. Um, still some tea leave reading here. Um, this was a brief, unsigned 5-4 order from the court. Not a ton of reasoning to get into. But I do want to touch down on something a little unusual here. Justice Elena Kagan dissented, as did three of the court's conservative justices, Samuel Alito, who was joined by Justices Thomas and Gorsuch. Jimmy, this is a weird lineup, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on, you know, Kagan being on the same side as those three conservative justices. Yeah, I mean, this one initially took me by surprise, as I think it did a lot of other court watchers. Um, So it's important to point out that she didn't actually join the written dissent that Alito wrote, joined by Gorsuch and Thomas, in which he kind of explains why he would have basically denied NetChoice's application. Um, But the more that I kind of sat with it, the more I, I, I think it has less to do with the merits of the actual lawsuit itself i think it's probably fair to say kagan is 
probably sympathetic and falls more in line with the other justices on the court in terms of the actual underlying legal claims that these internet companies are making for why they have First Amendment protection to enforce these content moderation policies. But I think if you look at you know Kagan's behavior in a lot of cases, especially in the shadow docket, I think maybe she's making a kind of a process point, a procedural point here. She's often criticized the court's conservative majority for granting emergency relief in a lot of these shadow docket cases without full briefing and full argument. And you know, I, I suspect that she might feel it hypocritical to do that in cases where you know it's a progressive policy that is being blocked as opposed to a conservative one. And, and I, it, it almost makes me think of, you know, Kagan has taken these kind of principled stands, so to speak, and in other cases as well. I'm thinking of a case, and I won't get too much into it, but it was a case called Ramos versus Louisiana a few years back. And it was a case over non-unanimous juries and whether that was unconstitutional. You know, on the merits, it seemed like she was pretty sympathetic that, you know, juries should be unanimous. It safeguards protections. There's, you know, like a lot of legacy to suggest that that's the that's the progressive outcome in the case. And that's the one that she probably believed in later on. But there was an important precedent basically saying that, you know, these non-unanimous juries were okay. And basically, she she takes this position where she defends the process of upholding precedent in stare decisis. And that's something that you see with Kagan a lot of the time, you know, even if they're results that you might not associate with a quote-unquote liberal justice appointed by a Democratic president. So that's my reading in the tea leaves. Of course, she didn't actually explain why, <laughs> right? but um, she clearly doesn't agree with Alito on the merits of of his dissent. Otherwise, she probably would have joined it. So why don't we get into that dissent and why he thought that the internet company's um, application here should have been rejected? Yeah, it's a pretty snappy dissent. I think it was about six pages. And he basically said he was uncomfortable with intervening at in the legal challenge at this stage. So in his view, NetChoice and the other trade group didn't provide a, a substantial likelihood of success in the future, and they shouldn't be awarded relief at this point. Um, one more thing, though, and this was maybe the most interesting part for me. Alito did say the issues presented by the case were novel and significant. So he basically is signaling that this is going to make it back to them more on the merits in the future. This is a quote from Alito's dissent. This application concerns issues of great importance that will plainly merit this court's review. Social media platforms have transformed the way people communicate with each other and obtain news. At issue is a groundbreaking Texas law that addresses the power of dominant social media corporations to shape public discussions of the important issues of the day. So clearly, this is not the last we've heard of this at the high court. I think we'll be talking about it again. I definitely think so, especially as other states pass similar laws. I mean, I know that there was a case over a very similarly worded Florida law. It actually came out the other way in another court of appeals. But yeah, I think Alito's pretty much sending out the signal that um, this is something that we should revisit. But um, Amber, why don't we move on to our main segment this week. So we got some news on on Tuesday about the status of the investigation into the leak of the Dobbs draft. Uh, this is Alito's draft overturning Roe versus Wade, published in Politico in early May. And it's looking like a pretty bleak time to be a law clerk at the Supreme Court, which is not something that you'd ordinarily think of because it's one of the most prestigious positions that a young budding lawyer at a law school can obtain. But on Tuesday, CNN reported that Supreme Court Marshal Gail Curley 
she was the one tasked with, you know, leading this investigation by uh, Chief Justice Roberts. She is now seeking personal cell phone records and signed affidavits from the court's three dozen or so law clerks. This is according to CNN. Some clerks are so concerned with these developments that they're actually thinking about hiring their own lawyers to advise them during this investigation. This is such an interesting development to me. I mean, I know everybody's been watching this investigation into who leaked the document unfold. Um, But it's interesting to demand these records because the clerks are obviously very busy right now or should be. We're waiting on 33 opinions. And at the same time, they're not the only group that could have leaked that draft opinion. I mean, there were about 100 people all told, including a bunch of support staff and the justices themselves that could have been involved here. So I'm very interested to break down um, the logistics of asking the clerks for that information. Yeah, I was chatting with a lawyer about this, and, and notably CNN's report does not describe um, any request of the justices themselves to turn over personal cell records, even though th- in theory you, they could just as likely be the source of the leak. But I, mean, I, I don't, don't imagine say. that that would go over very well. Yeah, I don't think justices <laughs> would love that. So that part doesn't surprise me. Exactly. Um, so after the story broke, there was kind of a mixed reaction in the legal community about the propriety of these demands for sensitive personal information from clerks, as well as you know whether they would be well advised to seek counsel. There's a lot to discuss here, and we have the outside perspective of a great guest this week. It's D.C.-based white-collar defense lawyer Shan Wu. Shan's a former federal prosecutor who now works to assist clients facing government investigations. Shan, you're the perfect person for us to talk to today. Thanks. Happy to be here. So, Shan, let me just jump in here and ask, what was your reaction to seeing the news on Tuesday that the Supreme Court Marshal is demanding these pretty personal and sensitive records from, you know, the, the three dozen or so law clerks that clerk at the Supreme Court? Yeah, I was really quite shocked at that. It really seems like a very bullying kind of tactic and also a rather incompetent tactic, frankly. I mean, the marshal of the Supreme Court does not have any real experience in doing investigations. I think that's really showing here. I mean, if any of those were my clients, I would advise them to never just wholesale start turning over records, much less perhaps a physical device without some sort of safeguards as to what it is they're looking at. Well, I think that's an important point to kind of follow up on. And that is, you know, there's kind of a, been a social media debate of sorts that's kicked off around, you know, what what should law clerks facing this position kind of do? And it, it seems to me that, that you kind of fall into the camp of they should probably be seeking outside counsel to assist them with pretty sensitive uh, uh, records requests like these. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as has been widely discussed, everything in our lives is on our phones nowadays. And usually in any kind of investigation that involves a forensic review of either records or data on the phone, there are a lot of safeguards that are put into place. But even more than that sort of procedural technical aspect of it, you know, from a equality perspective, it's really important that the Supreme Court should be setting an example for how it treats its employees. Honestly, while it's a great idea for them to consult outside counsel, the court should actually take it a step further and advise them, tell them you can have outside counsel and that the government would pay for those lawyers 
because it's an internal investigation into what they had to do for their jobs and they should not have to pay out of pocket for the lawyers. So that's a step that the court could take to make it plain that they're looking out and protecting the rights of these young lawyers. It's, you know, as in any kind of employment situation, this is a very unequal power dynamic. You have employees who basically serve at the pleasure of the justices, their careers are on the line. They should not be in a position of having to stand up to a justice and say, no, I'm not turning over this. I'm not going to cooperate. They need a buffer zone there. And the court really should be very sensitive to that and make sure that they're not putting these young lawyers in that very unequal power dynamic. Shan, you're dipping into something I'm really interested about here, which is sort of the power dynamics that we're talking about. Because I think for outsiders that maybe don't understand a lot about what law clerks are and what they do, um, they think, oh, they went to law school. They understand they should have outside counsel. No big deal. We don't have to look out for those people. They're educated. Um, But I know you've been a clerk yourself. You clerked in the Ninth Circuit, also at a district court. What do you feel about how the power dynamics work in those situations in in a court? The power dynamics, it's a great point to make how people think that because they're lawyers that they should be able to take care of themselves. They, they're like anyone else in a situation where it's your employer inquiring, they need to have that help. And these are relatively young people. Um, so that makes the power dynamic uh, unequal as well. I mean, there's an old saying in law, of course, that you know, a lawyer who represents themselves has a fool for a client. I was just <laughs> thinking they, about that too. It's so true. Right. Uh, and they shouldn't do that. But even more than the usual uh, inequity of that power dynamic employer versus employee, the employer has the leverage over the employee's future. It's also important for people to understand that Working in chambers with a judge, as I have in, in two instances, this is a very cloistered, very intimate, very intense environment because it's a really small staff and you're literally in a small room at a table, sometimes three or four other people and the judge. It's a small office where you're seeing the judge every day, the justice every day. So that kind of personal atmosphere, if it becomes uncomfortable, is far more pronounced than would be, you know, if you're working in some giant office and there's some supervisor that you're having some tension with, you're constantly in the presence um, of that person. So it makes it really, really hard. And and this time of year, too, it's probably a particularly intense period of work because they're finishing up the big opinions for the term. But working for a judge, uh, it's very, very tight, intense type of relationship. So if there's friction there, very difficult. And of course, you know, if there's an abusive situation where the judge is being emotionally abusive, if there's any harassment going on, makes it a really, really difficult situation for someone to be in. Given that tight relationship you described, is there any worry among clerks or would you imagine there's worry that if they actually retain counsel, they look like they did something wrong, that they look like they're the leaker? Oh, absolutely. I, I think for non-lawyers, that's always a worry. One of the questions I always get from clients is, you know, isn't going to make me look guilty if I retain a lawyer? And my answer is no. And more importantly, you have to protect yourself. I mean, when you're dealing with sophisticated people, a judge in a courtroom, big company, they understand that they're going to be lawyers involved. 
Here, though, that natural worry of looking guilty is a big factor for these judicial clerks. They're going to be very reluctant to do that. And there's a lot that a judge or a justice can do without explicitly saying, why are you hiring a lawyer? Although I wouldn't put that past <laughs> some of them. But, but there's the atmosphere, the attitude of, yeah, why do you need a lawyer? I mean, you, know, you should just trust us to take care of this. And if you won't cooperate, you must have done something wrong. I mean, famously, you know, ironically, in the Roe case, there have been now three leaks, basically. And the original decision, it was leaked prematurely what the decision was going to be. And that was done by a law clerk who actually had a misunderstanding about a reporter's embargo period. That law clerk self-reported to the then Chief Justice and offered to resign. Um, so, you know, people should really understand that the pressure on the clerks who feel very, very loyal to this institution um, is, is enormous. So that makes it much more difficult for them to want to say, hey, I need to talk to a lawyer. But, but they should, but it's a very, very hard situation for them. Well, let's talk about that the protection itself, the idea of protecting yourself. So, you know, when you have a Supreme Court marshal in Gail Curley who's demanding personal cell records and potentially signed affidavits, I mean, what kind of legal risks if if any, are presented by those developments in the investigation to maybe even a non-leaking clerk. Right. So with the affidavits right away, you're going to run into the concern over um, what they call the, quote, perjury trap. And perjury can apply not only to uh, verbal testimony, but to something signed, too. So probably those affidavits have the usual disclosure at the bottom that you're signing under penalty of perjury. And the problem with the affidavit is, you know, we don't know exactly what they're supposed to say in it. And if there's anything which becomes at odds later with what evidence comes out, now they've exposed themselves to a possible false statements um, type of accusation, criminal liability. The other aspect of it is you don't know what those phone records are going to show. If, if it's literally just the records and it's who you called, there's personal privacy aspects of that, that these folks don't want their friends, family being called, being pulled into that. It opens the door to who else are you calling? You know, what are you talking about? And that's why that kind of request needs to be very narrowly tailored and they need to be able to be very responsive um, to it. I mean, for example, the marshal could say, we want a list of phone records that include any of the following numbers. There could be numbers of reporters, or they could say, you know, any contact with the press, that uh, kind of thing would be a little bit more narrowly tailored. And certainly if the Supreme Court Marshal would actually ask to make copies of the phone devices themselves, the way the FBI does, they'll want a voluntary turning over of the phone to mirror image it, or they just seize it, that would be very, very dangerous because there can be all sorts of personal information on there that you don't want exposed, including things like what if you are texting, chatting with friends, family, and saying something that the justice might not like, you know, that could have terribly negative implications for your job. And even if you were not the leaker, if it is a clerk that, that leaked it, they might say, oh, you know, you have this particular political viewpoint. And it raises the risk also that the clerk will be discriminated against, basically, on account of their political views. It sounds like beyond these legal risks, which are 
kind of very worrisome obviously if you're a if you're a clerk worried about potentially perjuring him or herself um there's also these big professional risks i mean you you've heard it kind of described and reported before that that a lot of the and i think it's pretty well documented at this point that a lot of these supreme court clerks go on to super super high paying jobs you know big salaries at firms um after their clerkship is up and signing bonuses are up to like 300 plus thousand dollars so it sounds like beyond even just legal risk there's like a lot of professional risk here um if you're worried about potentially being you know tainted as a leaker if not proven or you know like you say something else comes up oh absolutely i think that professional taint uh, is part of the very difficult situation that they're in because the reason why <laughs> Supreme Court clerks com- command such a big signing bonus, I mean, with all due respect, they're smart people, but they're not that smart <laughs> compared to the rest <laughs> of us. Um, it, it's the status that the company's getting a Supreme Court clerk to join the firm, and they don't want that status tainted if a justice has really bad attitude towards the firm, it's not just if the firm appears before the justice. Uh, justices are very, very well connected <laughs> in the legal community. Their colleagues, their friends, are partners at big firms, companies, all that. So if the firm takes on someone who's basically been blacklisted by the Supreme Court, they're not interested in, in doing that, particularly at these very large, mega global type practices. They don't want any hint um, or something negative like that. So I know this is so high profile and we talk about it as a government investigation, which I guess it is, but this feels more akin to me to just an employer investigating potential bad behavior of their own employees. So with that context, does that leave the court itself open to any um, backlash or possible legal exposure by making strident demands around phone records and phones and that kind of thing? Oh, I, I think it does. I think you're exactly right. I mean, the right analogy is this is like a employer type of internal investigation. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of hot air on the right asking for a criminal investigation, which just seems completely ridiculous. But I think for the court, there are two aspects of this that are risky. And the first would be the legal aspect of what if it begins to look like they are violating the rights of the clerks, if there's discrimination involved, uh, and if there is a privacy type of discrimination that becomes alleged um, by any of the clerks or, or other employees of the court. The other piece of it ultimately may be far more insidious for the court is I think it continues to eat away at their legitimacy. I mean, this is the United States Supreme Court. Chief Justice Roberts is very concerned with the image and the power of the court deriving through its legitimacy. Of course, it's egg on the face that there was this leak um, from the court, but the reaction to it really counts. I mean, they should be taking the high ground of how you treat your employees and having their marshal make these kinds of bullying demands does not make them look good. I mean, it can leave them open to accusations of being bullying and sensitive, but also makes them look very panicked. <laughs> well, uh, it puts it, it back in the yeah. news cycle too, because we're sitting <laughs> right. here talking about it right now. Right, exactly. Yeah, and it, it kind of adds to the look of disarray, panic, misdirection that's going on. And that's 
you know, exactly the opposite, I'm sure, of what Chief Justice Roberts wanted to accomplish here. I mean, you can argue that he had to address it, but all these statements that the court has been making, not only about this, but you have the justices talking about how there's bad public perception of them. Amy Coney Barrett's famous statement of, you know, I'm here today to show that we're not a bunch of political hacks. All that is just like crazily bad communication strategy. (laughs) I mean, it's like the more you say that, the more people think that you're just being very defensive about things. So I think the handling of this leak um, has been really, really poor, and it just really adds to their bad look right now. Well, Shan, thanks so much for coming on the show to to talk all about this. We really appreciate you having you on. Oh, sure. No, happy to be here and enjoy the show. So that was a great call with Shan, and I'm, I'm left with the burning question, Amber. If you were a Supreme Court law clerk, would you be blowing up Shan's phone to kind of assist you with this investigation? Uh, I would want Shan on my side or someone like him that is skilled and smart in this area. I thought it was really funny when he said, um, you know, that old adage of, a lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client because I've thought about it the whole time we've been discussing what's going on with this leak stuff. I really think everybody should view having an attorney as an essential. Here, here. Well, it was a great episode, and I think that's about all the time we have. Thanks so much for kind of filling in for us this week, Amber, and and, and kind of descending from your your, your rarefied space as our <laughs> executive producer and being a <laughs> a lowly co-host for oh, a week. I loved but we it, appreciate Jimmy. it, of course. I'm happy to do it anytime. <laughs> awesome. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer and co-host this week, Amber McKinney, contributing reporters, Kate Bueller, Morgan Conley, and Jack Carp. Our guest, Shan Wu, and music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening.